There are certain words that have been spoken that, that have actually shook the world. What had God wrought was the first long-distance message by Morris Code or by Morris Telegraph. Mr. Watson, come here. I want you the first intelligible words sent by telephone. This one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind, the first words from astronaut Neil Armstrong as he stepped onto the moon's surface. Where art thou? The first words spoken by God to Adam and Eve after they had sinned. Ever since then, mankind has been in conflict because they have moved away from their creator. And there's been a conflict since then between truth and error, between God's way and every other way, and between life and death. And today we are still in that conflict. We feel it as Christians, especially when we know the truth and we know other people do not know it yet. So there's a conflict. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we look into your word, let us not only see the conflict and how the apostle dealt with it and how we are to deal with it, but let us also remember that the conflict has been won on the cross of Calvary, that Jesus accomplished everything needed for us to have peace with God and not conflict. And so we thank you for that. We count that to be the greatest treasure that we could ever hear and know and hold as our own on this side of eternity. I pray that would be so for all of us. And I pray you would receive the glory for all that will be accomplished. Lord, grow us in Christ's name and in his spirit so we would walk in our life in a manner that pleases the Lord. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I said from last time that once you become a Christian and have purpose in your heart that you are going to hold fast to this hope that has been given to you in Christ Jesus and that from there you are determined to continue in it and that you have been convinced by Scripture that you should not move away from the hope of the gospel, no matter what. You realize that the bottom line is, as long as a believer in Christ continues growing in the faith, they will be established and made firm, and they will not move away from the hope that is held out to them in the gospel. They will actually experience the reality of being new in Christ, and that Christ will be their sole focus. They, Christ will be the center of their life. And also Christ will give them this new understanding about what has happened to them so they can live their life in a pleasing manner. So since we've been a Christian, we are not people that are called just to sit around and do anything. We are actually called into a struggle, into a battle, and we have seen so far 
that we are to labor for Christ's supremacy, that requires certain things. It requires, first of all, suffering. and But suffering comes with an attitude in verse number 24, and that is to rejoice in suffering. Paul is saying that to us. He learned to do it. We ought to learn to do it too. Also, the focus group of why Paul suffered was the church in verse 24. He did it in behalf of the body, the church, and he did not rejoice in suffering for suffering's sake. Not at all, but it was for him no self-inflicted penance or pain to gain acceptance with God. His suffering was because he took a stand for Christ and he cared for Christ's church and Christ's people and he wanted others who didn't know it to be saved. So laboring to finish the work of evangelizing the lost was all part of the struggle of suffering. It will be for us too because laboring to finish the work of evangelizing the lost and building the church, that task will be met with resistance and many dangers. Second thing you already mentioned quickly is laboring for Christ's supremacy requires God is the source. And why is that? In verse 25, God is the one who calls. He called Paul to ministry. He also is the one who bestows what that ministry is going to be. And he gave Paul a stewardship from God to be able to open up a mystery that was held secret until his ministry. And, of course, he was a committed servant of another person's property, and that property was God's property. And it was God who conferred upon the apostle this stewardship for the benefit of the church. So it would benefit us today that we would know what God would want us to do and what God has done. So he was to finish something already started by the Lord himself. In other words, he was given a stewardship of God's plan of salvation. We are also given a stewardship and entrusted with the gospel to finish and continue on this unfinished work that Christ left us. A third thing is laboring for Christ's supremacy requires speaking for the one in power. Who's in power? God himself is in power. Christ having the preeminence, the God-man. And verse 25, what are we to speak? We're to speak the word of God, and he says here that I might fully carry out the preaching. And then secondly, he's going to speak the mystery of God and the mystery of God that was hidden from ages and generations now is being made known that both the Jews and the Gentiles become one person when they come to Christ in repentance and faith. So Paul is this conduit of this great mystery that has been given to him, and he did it well. He passed it on to us. And then we speak of the message manifest in verse 27 of chapter 1. It says, "In to whom God willed to make known what is the Riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So as I said, up till this point in the book of Colossians, it's been the saints in Christ. But now we see the counterpart that Christ is also in them, in us, as we 
become real believers. And here it is, here is the message that it's Christ in you which is the hope of glory. That the gospel changes from this Jewish sect to a worldwide opportunity that all the barriers are now down so that Jew and Gentile, saints alike, are fellow heirs with Christ because he is in them. And this mystery is not simply Christ himself. It is, but it includes Christ in us. This unbound Christ who is a creator of all things, and holds all things together, takes up his dwelling in us. That is an amazing thought. And this indwelling of the exalted Christ in the individual believer is our assurance of coming glory, where he says in the passage, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then, of course, this indwelling Holy Spirit is a deposit by God guaranteeing our future inheritance. And so that is a great wealth that we've been given by the Lord through the Apostle Paul. And we're to continue that on. This morning, I want you to notice today the fourth thing, and I want to expand on it today into chapter 2. Laboring, laboring for Christ's supremacy requires striving. Requires striving. Well, striving for what? To reach the goal of maturity. That's what we're striving all together for. Maturity for what? For who? For us. That we would be mature in Christ. That we would have the understanding that God wants us to have. That we would have the knowledge that frees us from all the bondages that we had in the past. So in other words... How do we do that? Well, first of all, if you notice in verse 28 of chapter 1, it says this very clearly. We proclaim him. So the question is, who do we proclaim? We don't proclaim a philosophy. We don't proclaim a program. And we don't proclaim a principle. We proclaim him, a person, Christ. And then once the Holy Spirit indwells you and you truly are a believer and you know it, he must begin, the Holy Spirit who is in you, must begin to instruct us in two areas, in area of belief and in the area of behavior. Both of them go together. Both of them go together. So from our passage, it includes, if you notice, in verse number 28, he says, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. So we are given this responsibility to admonish each other. Now, this word admonish is a common word, at least amongst us. It's the word we get the word neuthetic from, uh, neutheto, right? combination of two words the first is noose which means mind the second is titheme to place or to put or to put to mind and so that's this word admonish here in this word could be translated also warn 
or just instruction, teach. Now, instruction is really part of admonishing, and warning is part of instruction also. It's giving instruction in regard to belief and behavior. So the council is knowledge-based and motive-driven. But where does our authority come from for what we are to believe and how we are to behave? See, now that you are in Christ and Christ is in you, What should, we, what should we, we be looking for? Well, we should be looking for what we believe and how we, be, how we actually behave. Now, just quickly take your Bibles over to Acts chapter 20 for a, a minute. I just want to show you where this word shows up in different places in the Bible. In Acts chapter 20, verse number 31 and 32, It says there in Acts chapter 20, verse 31, Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish, admonish each one with tears. And then in verse 32, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So in that passage of Scripture, the apostle is teaching the people at length, three years, what? In what? The word of God's grace, which gives the people firmness in their faith and a hope for their future. That is what that word does. So it is always in the sense, of, gives the sense of teaching something. But then again, the word is also used in another place in Scripture in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and verse 14 and 15, you should turn there also, because here it's a warning for bad behavior. It's counsel and instruction that is addressed to the mind for the avoidance or cessation of inappropriate conduct. Look at 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 14. It says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, Take note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will, put, he will be put to shame, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So here this admonishing is to admonish something and warn them, don't walk like that in Christ if you claim to be a believer. Don't do this in Christ if you claim to be a believer. And so... Instruction is given not only to the congregation on how they deal with him, but to the person who's walking out of step with the instruction of the apostles or the word of God. Now let's turn back to Colossians, and you're going to find out that this admonishing can also be used conversationally or musically. If you notice in Colossians chapter 3, verse number 16, it says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. So in other words, that 
admonition can, can be done through music. Why? Music does teach. Music can encourage. Music can warn us. And music really does sometimes get down to our, our inner heart. It, it, it strikes a chord that other things don't. So music has always been part of God's program. If you go back in the Old Testament, you're going to find there's music everywhere. Music comes from God. And so, but the music has to be music that is well thought out and that the words have to give good instruction, right? And that good encouragement through the instruction of the word of God. So the Bible does tell us that admonition can come through music to God's people. And then also, if you notice back in chapter 1, verse 28, no one at all is beyond the need of this ministry of admonition, both on the receiving end and on the giving side. Notice in verse number 28, we proclaim him and admonishing every man, every single man. See, Paul says in Romans, in another passage in chapter 15, he says, concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. Now, in that passage of scripture, Paul says, listen, if you are going to admonish, there's got a couple things that go ahead of that. And this is the first one, is that you've got to be filled with all goodness. That means you have to be doing things because you want to honor God and do the right thing. And then secondly, you got to be filled with the right kind of knowledge to do it. You just can't do it out of all the worldly knowledge that you have obtained in your life or even psychology or philosophy that you may know. It has to come from the Word of God. And when it does, you and I will become able to admonish one another. And that's what we ought to be doing as believers in Christ Jesus. We ought to strive to be able to admonish, and we do that because we are filled with goodness and with all the knowledge of the Word of God. So we must receive instruction early and often teaching everyone official doctrine within the church gathering. The instruction must be the wisdom of God that rises from the word of God, for that's what it says in our text. We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom. So the instruction cannot be good ideas. It cannot be one's own inventions, or it cannot be human philosophy. It has to be the wisdom that rises out of the word of God. If you look over to chapter 2, verse number 6 through 8 of Colossians, it says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So in other words, the result of proper instruction and instruction not only taught but received properly will bear results. You know what the result is? Overflowing in gratitude. 
So, in other words, the Word of God brings us to a point, as we admonish one another, and as we're admonished from the Word of God, to bring us to this point. I'm so thankful. I am so thankful that I don't, what I have, I don't deserve any of it. I am so thankful. But also, it includes knowing that you're rich, you're wealthy. And why are you wealthy? Because you have this knowledge that God's given to you. You didn't come up with it your own, on your own. Nobody, nobody came up with, with it on their own. God gave it to us. And he gave it to us through holy men. So why do we need to keep teaching the word of God in season and out of season? Why do we need to do that? Well, our text tells us in verse number 28, this is why we need to do it. It says, we proclaim it, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that, here's the purpose, we may present every man complete in Christ. You know what that is? That the heavenly Father's purpose that has already been given in the book of Colossians becomes the purpose of all faithful ministry. What is that? Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. It says, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. In other words, you're getting ready by and through the word of God for the presence of God. You're getting ready for that. I'm getting ready for that, and I know it. Why? Because the Bible tells me I, I, this is good knowledge to have as you live your life every single day. So what is the father's purpose for his children? That we are going to be ready, blameless, in front of him on that day. The end time, last day, when we shall each stand before God. And so, yes, brethren, the task of bringing people to maturity is a daunting project. The Bible is a big book. There's a lot in the Bible, and it's, you can study it every single day, every day of your life until you die, and you still don't know everything. It's, it's not a, you can exhaust what's in the Word of God. It's a daunting project, but we work and we strive like competing to win a prize, engaging in a battle against difficulty and danger, and yet we move forward, striving toward the goal of spiritual maturity. That's what we're doing. Together we're doing that. We're admonishing what. But then, how does spiritual maturity actually look? Well, let me just give you a few things. Number one, spiritual maturity is characterized by Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. Ephesians 13 says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. We become more like Christ. Also, maturity is characterized by sanctification of behavior. I love the Galatians 2.20 passage. I have been crucified with Christ. It is, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, that I am being sanctified, and I'm being sanctified in my behavior, and God's doing from the inside 
out, not from the outside in. And then also maturity is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is, is easy to find out where it's at in, in Scripture, in Galatians chapter 5, and that is the fruit of the Spirit is the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the faithfulness and the gentleness and the self-control against such things. There is no law that I am growing in that way, and that's how it, spiritual maturity looks. Also, I, maturity is characterized by a clear discernment of biblical truth. I'm getting to see what the Bible actually says, and I'm understanding it. I'm understanding it, for it says in Ephesians 4, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And then a last thing I could say is that spiritual maturity is characterized by dependence on God. Now, if you are right there in Colossians, you'll find out in verse number 29 that we are not left to our own feeble strength and abilities. We must depend on God. Why do we de must depend on God? Because in ourselves, we have no power. But I want you to notice, that's why we, we remain dependent on God. Verse 29, he says this, for this purpose also I labor striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Paul knew it. He had no power unless God worked in him. We have no power unless God works in us. And because we are not working in our own strength, but in the supernatural energy, energy to produce what only God can produce and do through us the power to live the Christian life and to do the work comes from Christ himself through his spirit. And the promise of God's presence and suffering is that God will be with you, he will be with me, and make you and I ready for eternal glory. That's God's promise to us, and that will take place. And the work of Christ in us and for us does not exempt us from work. Nor does the Holy Spirit's operation supersede human effort, but actually excites human effort. I'm excited by God to live the Christian life. I'm given the power to do it, to live the Christian life. You know you can't live it on your own, because as soon as you try doing it on your own in the flesh, you fall right on your face, and you break your nose. But when you're living in the power of Christ, you all almost are amazed that I just had victory over this temptation. How did I do that? That I didn't go with this person when in the past they would have convinced me to go with them, and I didn't. Or I would have had this drink or smoked this joint, but I'm not doing it now. Why isn't it? And I, you know what? I don't really desire it anymore. It doesn't have control over me anymore. Why? Because the Spirit of God that has control. And the Spirit of God will gain more and more control as we live for Christ and depend on him. While we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in making us holy and spiritually mature on our way to eternal glory, we will expect and we should experience conflict as a Christian. We are not 
actually we, we really weren't aware of the conflict when we remained captive in Satan's dark domain. He kept us from that. The whole point is, I want to be happy. I want to do things that make me happy. And that's his modus operandi, is to give people things that make them happy, or ultimately puts them in bondage where they don't know what to think or what to do. They're slaves to him. But once we are, we're moved from the dark domain to the kingdom of God's dear son because of our faith in Jesus Christ, at that point, we enter into spiritual conflict. But with the strength and the power of God, Christ in you and you in Christ, that is the point here. So the conflict we entered will have many fronts to it. But the main front will be the area of doctrine especially the doctrine concerning Jesus Christ. You test any cult out. The first thing you go, you go and test is what do they believe about Christ? And you finally have to give it up because you find out their view of Christ is distorted, convoluted, and incorrect and down, out, uh, downright heresy. So the authority base which upholds our belief system and moral standards must be holy scripture. It must be. It cannot be any other way. So Ligonier Ministries actually uh, had a bunch of personnel wander around college campuses doing spontaneous interviews, asking religious questions and theological questions about what they believe, you know, and the pretty much they wanted to want them to fill in the blank. I believe this. Well, one of the questions was, what do you believe about God and Jesus? And one student after another were saying, well, God is whatever you want him to be. Another said, all religions are equally valid. All religions are equally true. Another said, if your religion is Buddhism, and yours Confucianism, or yours is Judaism, or your, yours is Islam, or yours is Christianity, they're all the same. They all believe the same God, and they're all true. But all religions are not equally true because they do not believe the same things. They believe contradictory things. Christianity believes that Jesus was God incarnate. Other religions say that Jesus was a nice guy. He was a great teacher. He was a man of principle, uh, but certainly not God. Jesus is either God or he is not. He cannot be divine and not divine at the same time and in the same relationship. Somebody is wrong about Jesus. I believe that he is God, and either I am wrong or Muhammad was wrong. The truth claim of Christians and Muslims cannot be both true or any other religion you want to put in there. See, remember, ours is not a religion. We proclaim Christ, right? We proclaim Christ. So the true claim of Christians and Muslims cannot be true. There can only be one truth. And the difference between each religious group is the location of the authority base that holds up their belief system and standards. Most people 
use personal preference as their authority. In fact, this is what some of the students said. They had different feelings about different things, about authority. And one student says, the Bible doesn't have much authority over my life. I basically go on my own, and I have my own certain morals. Another said, basically, if I don't like it, then it's wrong. And if I like it, then it's right. It's simple as that. Another said, I decided whether something is wrong for me, you know, and if it's not morally correct for me or something like that, then I won't do it. If something's good for me, if it's going to make me happy, or if it's going to get me what I want, then that's what I do. See, that's their authority base. But then if you go to religious systems, you find out their authority base is the holy books and traditions gathered by men for the basis of what they believe or their authority. For example, the Quran, the Islamic scriptures, is divine revelation only in the Arabic language communicated by vision to Muhammad. And that was communicated by angels and not by God. The Quran offers vague guidelines and principles for more comprehensive principles for living for the Muslim they have to go to the hadith, which is the kind of the life experiences of Muhammad. And that's where they go. So that becomes their basis of authority. But most religions have the basis of authority like that. You examine every one. But you didn't come to Christianity. Christianity, Christianity loc locates their authority base in one source, the scriptures contained in the 66 inspired books, which remain the instruction for all life and godliness. See, that's what we're taught, and that's what's true. One Christian said this about their authority base, my standard for faith and belief comes from the Bible. I believe the Bible to be without error, perfect, the living, God-breathed word of God, and through those scriptures, is where I obtain my guidance, my morals, with the way Jesus Christ has told me to live my life. See, that's the guidance, right? That's where we ought to get it from. And so you and I are going to be people that are in a conflict. We are in a struggle for truth, for how to live my life in a way that honors God. So Satan's not done with you because now you become Christ. He now has his target on you, like we read in Ephesians. He's flinging at you flaming missiles. I don't know about you, flaming missiles don't sound like a cakewalk. It sounds like you better have your armor on, you're going to be blown to smithereens, right? But we're to put the armor of God on, which is putting on Christ, and we're to stand up against this. But we got to know what we believe to do that. We have to be standing on truth to do that. So if you go back to Colossians chapter 2, now we begin to see the conflict more clearly. It says in verse number 1, Paul is saying to the, to the Colossians, he is saying to them, listen, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. The Christian life is always described as a thing of energy. 
as I said already, a journey which is heading somewhere, a race in which you finish the goal, a boxing match in which you don't get knocked out. And if you do get knocked down, you get back up. See, the Christian life is always like that. And the term here, struggle, jumps off the page in order to inform the readers of the agona. That means the contest. It, the word literally means contest. And if you think of an athletic contest or metaphorically a race, it pictures the exertion put out in the face of opposition like a struggle, like a fighting a, a boxing match. And the picture here is of an athletic context, uh, contest which is strenuous and demanding. And that should characterize most Christians' lives. You are struggling. I am struggling. But I have, I'm doing it in the strength of God. I'm doing it knowing already the re re results will be if I am following what God says. So the apostle is using the word in a more figurative way figurative way to describe an intense non-physical struggle. Paul also includes the word great with the word struggle to describe the size and intensity of his ongoing internal wrestling. The real struggle was his own heart for the believers that they would mature, that they would grow, that they would become firm. So what is he wrestling with? Wrestling with, he's wrestling with the very things that will hinder reaching the goal to be firmly established in the faith and remain established. The greatest conflict we will have will be against false teaching. If the enemy can get us to have a low view of God and to ignore the word of God or mix it together with other teachings and add and take away from the authority of the world, then he will supply everything that he needs to for you to grapple with that. He will use any teaching flying around out there to carry us on some wave and then leave us stranded on some distant shore, broken and bruised and bleeding and confused. You say, well, what are some of those things? CRT will do that. Christian, uh, what's going on uh, today? Critical race theory. That's getting into the church. Race hatred is, is abounding in our country. That will get into the church. Lies about what is true. That erases common boundaries that we all know. It makes them confusing. Like what? Like marriage. Marriage has all kinds of definitions today. It's not just a man and a woman. It's all kinds of things. Male and female identities. Human dignity. Bullying is on the rise because of this cancel culture. Even that young girl that was committed suicide in New Jersey here, Ocean County, because the kids bullied her. People do not have a respect for the image of God in us. That has an effect. That cannot be in the church. It cannot be. If there's one place, all those things should never be is here. 
But we, it's all our job to make sure that don't happen. We may not have been aware of how much error disintegrates the heart's confidence and produces trouble and doubt and confusion, or how error also snaps the bond of love and splits the church into parties. Error is seductive, and it is destructive. And the most effective antidote to any heresy is the proclamation of the doctrine of Christ, that false teachers are also also offer a secret knowledge, that's the whole point here in in Colossians, which blind its followers by its failure to rightly exalt Christ and submit to him. So in other words, truth is worth fighting for. It's worth the conflict. It's worth the struggle. But I tell you what, it costs something to stand up. It costs something to be counted as unpopular. You know, Super Bowl's today, isn't it? I don't know if you're a football fan, but there's been a little controversy about this this um, this Super Bowl. You know where the con- controversy is? Both quarterbacks claim to be a Christian. And are not, I don't know who they are, I don't know their background, but they're, from what some of the conversations I heard, it sounds like they understood what it meant to be a Christian. Both of them. And so this has become a big thing for the media. They don't know what to do with this. A guy's claiming to give God the glory for where they're at and that the game is whatever the Lord wants it to be. The Kansas City Chiefs, I think it's uh, Patrick Mahomes, and then Philadelphia Eagles, Jalen Hurts, both of them are claiming to be Christians. If they are really at that point in their life and they're willing to speak out in this world, you know what? That's standing up. That's standing up at a place where it's not popular to stand up with all the stuff that's been going on in sports. And a lot of people are not even watching sports anymore because of that, because of all the garbage that's been Dumped on it. See, human wisdom of our time says keep an open mind. Don't be dogmatic. There's good in all religions. But God says just the opposite. From Jude, he says, contend earnestly for the faith which was, which was once for all handed down to the saints. In other words, it is worth fighting and standing for truth, but there will be a cost. You will have people walk out of the room. You will have people curse you out. You will lose friends. You may lose a job. You may lose something, but you're going to lose. There's going to be conflict. Well, God's already told us that, so I shouldn't be very surprised at that. See, he says just the opposite. There is no such thing as spiritual pacifism. Service that counts costs. Fight for the truth, which produces spiritual strength and maturity. Fight for that. And then Paul looks back in Colossians chapter 2, 
in verse number one, he looks at the people that he are his constituents, the ones that he's wrestling in prayer for. And notice what it says in verse one. It says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. See, the Colossians and the Laodicean congregations were only about 12 miles apart from each other, but they were infiltrated by false teaching. And Paul was very concerned about them, but they never saw him face to face. So Paul's compassion, despite his absence in ex, uh, expressed in his written, con- is, is given to them in his written concern for his constituents, the Colossians might think that he cared less for them than the communities he personally planted and watered. They never felt the magnetism of his personal presence and were at a disadvantage from not having had the inspiration and direction of his personal teaching. Imagine having the Apostle Paul teach you right there. That would have been amazing. But he is teaching us. See, Paul shows them and he shows us that they had a very warm place in his heart. His love for them traveled beyond the limits of eyesight. The apostle expresses how much he cared for them, wrestling in prayer for them so that they stand firm in their faith. And Paul also had faithful workers who would do the same thing, like Epaphras. If you look over to Colossians 4, verse 12, what do you see there? It says, Epaphras who is one of your number, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, sends his greeting, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you might stand perfect and fully assured in the all the will of God. He's praying for their maturity, but he's wrestling in prayer. He's struggling in prayer for them. And that's what prayer is too. Prayer is a struggle. It's a struggle. Speaking to the Lord. Asking the Lord to do things that we cannot do, to accomplish his will through us. See, that's what's going on here. That Paul's inward struggle also found its way in outward action. And what was that outward action? By his writing ministry. He's writing them a letter. Maybe, you know what? Maybe sometimes writing people notes and letters is more effective than face to face communication. Because I can take a letter or I can take something and and print it and have it right there and look at it, right? Well, we have the Word of God. We can keep going back and looking at it. See, that's Paul's concern. His concern is that I do have passion and compassion for you, and I struggle for you, and I write you, these congregations, a personal letter from my prison cell. For what reason? So I can fill you with knowledge. So I can warn you of the dangers all around you, which are common to all Christians. And so I can supply encouragement or admonition to firm you up in your faith. So you don't want wobble. So you stand strong. So you know what you believe. So you know where your base of your foundation is and what you're building on. You know that. have to drop stop it there but i just want you to look at verse number two 
The conflict has a designed objective, which I'll pick up next time. Here's the designed objective. That, in other words, that the purpose of the struggle is to come alongside the believers at Colossae and at Laodicea and keep their hearts knit together. Notice what it says in verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love. Now, you may think that's a bit odd, but I tell you what, as I finish this passage of Scripture when I'm done with it, that you're going to find out that knowledge and love are our defense against false teaching. Because he's not talking about individual knowledge and love. He's talking about corporate, body, not just me, us, knowledge and love, that we're standing together as a body. For what reason? To keep false teaching as far away from us and each other as we possibly can. So we stand firm. Because Satan is slick, and if we're not in it together, then he's going to knock us down. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I do thank you that the word of God again exposes and reveals to us the truth that we are able to stand in. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you accomplish what we could never accomplish, that we are in a conflict, but we have peace and victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Lord, we want other people to have that too. So we praise you, Lord. We ask you, Lord, to firm up our faith. Make us strong. Give us the ability to stand in the conflict knowing that there is a cost. But you've given us the strength to be able to stand up against that conflict. And know that we have the victory in Christ Jesus. And I pray this this morning in your name. Amen.